This is an AMI podcast. Hey there, this is Kelly McDonald, co-host of Kelly and Company on AMI-audio. On our show, we're always discussing the latest events and happenings in the blind and low vision community. Our regional contributors across Canada work tirelessly to keep you updated on events you can't miss and keep you connected to your community. So don't miss out. Listen to Kelly and Company wherever you listen to good podcasts. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. COVID-19 has changed our way of life. For the disability community, the pandemic has created some opportunities while simultaneously heightening pre-existing barriers. Now, politicians across the country are talking about reopening the economy. Businesses are starting to operate, social distancing guidelines are gradually being relaxed, and public amenities are being reopened. While these are welcome changes for many people, disability advocates are sounding the alarm. Many people with disabilities remain vulnerable to the virus, even as plans for reopening steam ahead. It's important that the over 5.3 million Canadians living with disabilities are not forgotten in plans for economic recovery. Today, we discuss some impacts of reopening the economy on people with disabilities. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joyita Gupta. And of course, if you're hearing the show on the weekend, you are hearing the show on the weekend for the very first time because our time slot has moved. But other than that, not much has changed. I want to remind you that if you'd like to keep up with the latest AMI-audio segments dealing with COVID-19 from all of our daily shows, now with Dave Brown, Kelly and Company, and of course, The Pulse, you can visit ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. I myself have been at home for several weeks now. I think my friends and family, colleagues have all been in the same situation. We're all practicing social distancing, as are you. But more and more, we're hearing in the media news coverage of plans to reopen the economy. And there are some perspectives from people within the disability community that highlight the need to ensure that this community is not forgotten or left out of those conversations. In the second half of the program today, we hear from Ravi Malhotra, who is a full professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. Professor Malhotra recently co-authored an article which appeared in the Ottawa Citizen. The article makes a case for why people with disabilities must not be forgotten once the lockdown lifts. Professor Malhotra will, of course, join us a little bit later on in the program. But first, my guest is Professor Catherine Underwood, who is faculty at the Department of Early Childhood Studies at Ryerson University. Professor Underwood co-wrote an article with Dr. Gillian Perrick, which looks at the impact of the coronavirus on seniors and people with disabilities in long-term care homes. Professor Underwood joins us now by phone from Toronto. Professor Underwood, welcome to The Pulse. It's so great to have you. Thank you very much for having me. We know that long-term care homes have had some long-standing problems, and COVID-19 has really caused the pot to boil over, as it were. Can you give us a sense, a national picture, 
of the scope of outbreaks in some of these long-term care homes? Uh, Well, I think that um, most of us are able to see that through the media. Uh, Every week, a new long-term care home is identified in the media. Just just, uh, today, I was looking at um, an article from APTN about uh, an Indigenous woman who was in Midland Gardens in Scarborough um, and contracted COVID-19. And I think it's, it's important that we see those statistics and recognize the very high um, uh, death rates, which were identified in that article as well. But um, I think we also need to recognize the diversity of experiences that happen in long-term care across the country. So um, I I think that the um, statistics uh, give us some indicator, but they also are really not getting at the the experiences that people are having across the country in different forms of long term care in different parts of the country. Being locked down, there's there's the vulnerability and concerns about infection rates, but there's also the reality of uh, people being uh, isolated from their families because they are in long term care facilities. So I think all of those are part of the the picture that we need to consider when we're thinking about long term care. I just read an article myself about a vice president from a Woodbridge long-term care home who just lost her job after making some fairly insensitive remarks about concerned family of some of the long-term care residents. Do you feel that that sort of an incident is a one-off, isolated incident, or would you say that there's a deeper, more insidious culture of ableism that permeates the long-term care center facilities? Uh, so the, in the introduction, you referenced the article that I wrote that uh, my colleague Gillian Perrick from York University led, and I co-authored with her on um, thinking about ableism in the in the discourse around long-term care. Um, Gillian and I are both researchers, primarily with children. Gillian's work focuses on inclusive practices in schools. My own work is about early childhood education, and I certainly think actually that conversation is one that's important with regards to the opening of the economy. Um, But we wrote the article because we could hear the ableism embedded in the discourse that was coming from um, all parts of uh, uh, the the conversation about COVID-19. And the article came out in mid-May, but we started writing it earlier than that because we could hear um, the the kinds of conversations that have a hidden ableism in them. I think certainly when we start talking about concepts like vulnerability, these are not neutral ideas. They're, they're mm-hmm. connected into ways in which society perceives some, some human beings as more valuable than others, as more vulnerable than others, as needing intervention in ways that other people don't. Um, so, so I think that there's uh, uh, a lot of concern about inequality, and ableism is just one form of, um, of uh, discrimination that happens in this context. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that the fact that a lot of long-term care homes are privately owned and managed, does that factor into the treatment and the outcomes for people with disabilities and seniors who live in these uh, places? So, um, as I mentioned, my research focuses on early childhood, but I think there's a parallel there. Um, Mm -hmm. I I believe that in many aspects of care in our society, we have a mixed system, a a private system and a public system. So even in publicly Mm -hmm. funded long-term care facilities, there will be privately um, uh, contracted people working there. Um, And this is because we designed our system in this way. Um, Part of the reason there's privately run facilities is because there's a a 
critical shortage of beds in long-term care facilities mm-hmm. in this, in this certainly in Ontario. Just today I saw that, that that there's a backlog of people trying to get into long-term care because hospitals are not being able to refer people to long-term care. Um, but one of the things that I think has, uh, you know, there's been a call for uh, um, a more critical look at the long-term care system, but I do believe that it is going to be really important that we think about that um, the long-term care system in the context of a much bigger system, which includes hospitalization, uh, the LINs, the, the support services that are available to people in home, um, private insurance, like who's paying for that. There's a big, there's a difference between who can be in publicly funded and privately funded facilities. Um, I think there's a, there's a complex system of decision-making and services at play here. And the other piece of this that I often think about is just who it is that is providing the bulk of the care work. Uh, To the best of my understanding, it's often poor and racialized women who do the bulk of this work. And I wonder if the very nature of the people who provide the care work means that they are less able to draw attention to some of the exploitative labor practices that are endemic within care homes and long-term care facilities. I think there's no question, and certainly this week, many people are think have it at the forefront of their minds, thinking about uh, racialized workforces and inequality that um, that stems from hundreds of years of discrimination, which I think is really important to consider. I think we also need to think about our immigration practices because many of those the people working in those um, uh, uh, situ in those types of jobs in those roles um, are new immigrants. I, I also think that, again, this parallels a general ableism. Like there, I, I know of work in schools, for example, that looks at um, educational assistance and who's in the roles of educational assistance and just how marginalized most workforces are who are directly working with disabled people. So I think that there's a connection there between um, the, the valuing of disabled lives or the not valuing of disabled lives and how we treat the workers who are working with disabled people. All of this to lead to the question of how are you feeling now that the government is making all of these announcements in various provinces about reopening the economy? Do you feel like they've sufficiently addressed the outbreaks in long-term care homes or are they just steaming ahead without due consideration for what people with disabilities and seniors are going through right now? I would say that's a hard question to answer. I mean, I don't know uh, what what considerations are going into decision making uh, what i can speak to is the public discourse that's available mm-hmm. and i certainly think that we are focusing on the economy and the economy is while it is important for us to to have a healthy economy in order to support individual people that that economic conversation is not looking at inequality within our economic system and so we're talking about bringing care services back online so that people can be working. Um, we're talking about some health care services coming back online. Um, I can actually, I actually am uh, hearing more in the, in the child care conversation, con- my own concerns about ableism, because the child care system is going, is going to be reopened in Ontario in order to address the economy, but nobody's talking about what, who gets access to those child care spaces. There will be fewer children in those spaces. 
there there's concern about the workers and about the safety of children in those communities but nobody's talking about um, the kinds of things that people used to give platitudes about oh all child care mm-hmm. should be inclusive mm-hmm. but many child care spaces are not inclusive in this province and I do believe that people with disabilities may be uh, more marginalized by the social isolation by the lack mm-hmm. of support services by the inaccessibility of care and and educational services. So um, I think that we should be having that conversation if, as we reopen, who should be prioritized to get back into those services, both in terms of vulnerability, but also in terms of who has been impacted by the shutdown. Professor Underwood, we just have about a minute left. If you had to give us just an elevator pitch for what you feel is the most important consideration moving forward so that people with disabilities are not left out or forgotten as we reopen the economy, what would you say is the most important thing to keep in mind? I would say that it's really critical that when we're looking at services reopening, like long-term care and child care, that we don't see those services as individual standalone services, but they are part of a bigger system of care that uh, is both publicly and privately funded. And when we're considering care, we need to think about who is being cared for, that we are reopening these things in the interests of the people who should be cared for. And we most certainly need to consider uh, whether or not we are supporting people with disabilities in that reopening. And in many cases, I believe we should support those people first. We should support disabled people first. And it may lead us to a better quality service in the long run. Professor Catherine Underwood, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much, Joita. Now we'd like to bring in another point of view, which delves into the unintended consequences of reopening the economy on people with disabilities. My guest right now is Professor Ravi Malhotra from the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. Professor Malhotra co-authored an article titled, People with Disabilities Must Not Be Forgotten Once the Lockdown Lifts. Professor Malhotra wrote this article along with Christina Johnson, who is a public servant and involved with the Stopgap Foundation in Ottawa. Professor Malhotra joins us now to discuss their article. Professor Malhotra, welcome back to The Pulse. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for having me back. It's always a pleasure. So, In the article, you talk about a couple of ways in which as we start to open the economy back up and pave the way for economic recovery, we're doing our best to practice social distancing, but we're doing things in a way that clearly put people with disabilities at a a bit of a disadvantage. Can you give us a couple of examples to help us wrap our minds around this idea? I'd be delighted. I mean, so one of the issues that we talk about in this article, Christina Johnson and I, is the whole issue of patios. So one of the strategies is because COVID is so contagious, they want to streamline uh, municipalities, and not just in Ottawa, but in Vancouver and other cities they're exploring across the country, uh, putting more seating in patios. But that can have a detrimental impact for people uh, who use wheelchairs, scooters, uh, other mobility devices in order for them to get around. Uh, And the second problem is that many of these patios are not wheelchair accessible to begin with. Unlike other countries like the United States, we have a a, a poor record, you know, on 
making things accessible. So you have not only this problem of creating a barrier, but you have a second barrier in that many of them are not accessible to people with physical disabilities in the first place. So that that, that, that would be one illustration, you know, but I think there's many others. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also talked a little bit about the impact on people who are blind or low vision as we move away from uh, to, to options that involve, uh, you know, tech, technological options to read menus and things like that. Uh, is there some concern that those things may not be made accessible from the get-go? Exactly. So another aspect of COVID, which of course everyone agrees is very important in controlling the infection, would be to eliminate physical menus. And so, uh, but what, one of the things I'd love to stress for your listeners is that this is both a peril and a possibility. It's, the, it's uh, a double-edged sword, you could say, in, in, in the sense that there is an opportunity, because if you do it correctly and have electronic menus with the right technology, you've not only accommodated people who are low vision or blind, but you've actually made it more accessible than it was previously. But that's contingent on, on consulting the right people, the experts who are people with disabilities, you know, to mm-hmm. get the technology right to begin with so that if you're mm-hmm. going to have a patio, you're going to have a menu uh, that's electronic, that you provide these services in a way that includes people with disabilities. How do you do that? By consulting people with disabilities, mm-hmm. you know, when you have these plans and these uh, going forward People with disabilities need to be consulted when provinces uh, begin to open up, as they've started to do now gradually. Mm -hmm. Consultation is such an important piece, and I'd like to, if possible, return to it later on in our conversation. But as many provinces are opening up their economies, they are keeping the public health directives front and center in doing that. And as you know, Professor Malhotra, there are uh, not all provinces, but some provinces that also have accessibility legislation on, uh, you know, on, on the books, Ontario being one of them. How do those two things come together? What is the interplay there? Does one of those things necessarily supersede the other, or is there a fine balancing act? Well, I think the first thing to remember is that human rights legislation uh, has quasi-constitutional status, and that means when a government takes uh, an initiative, an action, you always have to look at uh, government action, including pandemic plans, opening up through the prism of human rights. Okay, mm-hmm. I would distinguish, though, between human rights and accessibility legislation, uh, as you were referring to. A lot of people have these confused. And so while the fundamentals are true, uh, unfortunately, legislation like the AODA and their equivalents in other provinces like Manitoba don't have a lot of teeth. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's also true for the very recent federal legislation. So I think the mm-hmm. principle is right, but you would see it through the prism of human rights. But I mean, from a policy perspective, it really shouldn't matter. It's something that government should be doing anyway uh, mm-hmm. as a matter of going forward. You know, human rights as a concept should always be a part of the conversation, and it should always be part of your consultations. You know, when why not have human rights commissions provincially and federally brought on board uh, in terms of how you're going to consult? I think that's an imperative uh, initiative to undertake, and that expertise already exists. So why mm-hmm. not just read things in a way that I think uh, would avoid problems at the outset, from the get-go, rather than discover uh, halfway through that you've got a problem? Because COVID's probably going to be with us for a long time. Why not mm-hmm. get this right now? 
Now, based on what you're saying, it sounds like there hasn't been a lot of that consultation that you'd like to see happen. In light of that, do you feel that perhaps we need to slow down and maybe even hold off on reopening the economy until we've had time to consult with the people with the expertise, i.e. people with disabilities? I think that's an excellent point. There's a broader question that you're making uh, or raising, I should say, that is more epidemiological in that, mm. you know, there's a philosophical question about when to open up, you know, and I think there's general concerns about whether we're opening up too quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. That those, But absolutely, regardless of that, even if the best medical advice says it's time to open up, you know, I, I think that you need to consult. Do you want to actually delay it? You know, that's a philosophical question. I think what you need to do is bring the experts on board. One of the things about pandemics is you've got to be able to handle doing multiple things at once. And I think uh, I think the way forward is to have disabled people, people with disabilities, as experts in whatever process you have going forward. Have them as a seat, give them, provide them with a seat at the table, so to speak, mm-hmm. so that and- they're there to to provide the consultation. So whether that's a week from now, that might be warranted in some provinces. In other provinces, it might be much later. See, in Toronto, some places, we may not be opening up right away. Regardless of when you do that, uh, the time to consult is now. And uh, even if you're not opening up, you, you need to do that as soon as possible. The sooner you consult, the sooner you have these conversations, the more likely you're going to have an opening that isn't... Uh, beset with multiple problems because it's always easier to fix problems in advance than play catch up later. Do you feel that part of this comes down to ableism, the lack of consideration or even an indifference towards people with disabilities, that they're not the people that we're thinking about, they're not the ones that we intuitively provide with a seat at the table? I think that's always been a problem. You know, I think Mm. that that it's very much uh, an issue to have people with disabilities as experts. And, you know, that that would apply to many areas of law. I mean, it applies to absolutely to what you're talking about. It it also applies to the to the more thorny issues of hospital policies, you know. And so, uh, uh, you know, I, I've been lucky enough to co-author with Tess Sheldon a piece that's going to be published open access online about the implications of COVID-19. And so some, some of the people... Uh, that we talk about in in the book have chapter that we've written raise questions around visitation policies in hospitals mm-hmm. and so if you're someone that requires assistance you may uh for communication for example uh you know you may need someone there but hospital policies have been very stringent and disabled advocates people with disabilities have been raising issues around hospital visitation policies that's you know that links directly to your point. You could avoid a lot of these problems by having people with disabilities consulted when you're crafting those policies to begin with. In the hospital mm-hmm. sector, in the retail sector, there's no sector where it would uh, save you energy and, frankly, money uh, mm-hmm. to, to do it at the outset because in a lot of these cases, you're going to find that you're going to be doing this anyway because the Human Rights Tribunal will tell you to do it. Well, look, you've just wasted three months and you've hired legal counsel. That's a waste of your time and that's a waste of everyone's time. It's far easier for everyone if you consult at the beginning. 
Well, consultation is the key. But the other idea that I was intrigued by in your article is this notion that with all of this federal aid that's being rolled out and provincial aid that's being rolled out to businesses in particular, maybe we need to tie this financial assistance to ensuring that people with disabilities and accessibility are kept at the forefront of the reopening. Can you expand on that for us? Oh, yes. Thank you very much. That's a really important point that we mentioned very briefly in our article that uh, if you're going to have assistance, which I think is being talked about federally and provincially in every sector of the economy has pretty much been saying, or many of them, that, you know, we've been devastated. We, we need this. We need that. We need financial assistance to get back on our feet and get going. Well, then we're saying, well, hold on. Accessibility needs to be something uh, that you need to be doing. It's not acceptable to say that you're going to take tax money, large amounts of tax money, uh, and not do this. The, the perfect example is the airline industry that wants mm-hmm. large quantities of money. I mean, the, they're the paradigmatic example, really, you know, I, for, for accessibility, where you can say, well, look, you've long held had barriers uh, for blind people, for people with mobility impairments. You've got washrooms on planes that are tiny, and you've always said this is something we can't do. Our airline is its just impossible. It's undue hardship. Well, now you want billions to save your industry, and you're implementing COVID accommodations at the same time that are going to redesign seats. You're going to be changing everything anyway. These questions are open. This is the perfect time for you as an airline industry uh, to start thinking about that. I've used airlines as an example, but you could Mm -hmm. use many others, railways, many other sectors that could start thinking about it. Those are federally regulated. Ottawa could say, we're going to put conditions on this, you know, and there's people out there, there's experts like my mentor and friend, David Lepofsky, who I'm sure you know very well, come and say, mm-hmm. give uh, the expertise. You know, there, there's, that's one example. There's many people that would be willing to do it, provide the expertise, and uh, outline the conditions necessary to provide a barrier-free and inclusive Canada. Ravi Malhotra, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and time flies when we're having fun. Thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me once again. That was Ravi Malhotra, professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. Professor Malhotra co-authored an article which appeared recently in The Ottawa Citizen and which we will also link to on our blog, ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. Lots that we've talked about today. And if you missed any of my conversation, either with Ravi Malhotra or before the break with Catherine Underwood, please do check out the podcast. It's available on your favorite podcast platforms. As we wrap up today's conversation about the impacts of reopening the economy on people with disabilities, I think that there's a lot that can be said. It's a complicated issue, but a necessary conversation. We want to make sure that people with disabilities are not forgotten and that are that they are consulted with to reflect on what Ravi Malhotra was saying, but also to make sure that we don't inadvertently create a situation where people with disabilities are seen as expendable as the people who get left out of conversations that prioritize economic growth and revitalization. I read an article recently by author Arundhati Roy, whose work I really admire. It was published in the Financial Times, where she referred to the pandemic as a portal, as a way for all of us to envision a different world, free of barriers, free from discrimination, that the pandemic 
for all the challenges that it has brought to the surface also gives us an opportunity to collectively imagine a different, a better, and a more prosperous future. And so there is an opportunity there. I would really like to remind you to go over to our show blog, ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. We'll have links to the articles that we talked about today, as well as a, a link to my conversation with Ravi Malotra about his anthology that that conversation took place a few months ago. I'll make sure to put that link on the blog as well. I'd like to thank Ravi Malotra and Catherine Underwood for being my guests on the program today. The technical producer of the pulse is Nisreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI audio with special thanks to Paula Deneen, who's technical supervisor thanks a lot for listening to the program we'd love to get your feedback you can find us on twitter at ami audio use the hashtag pulse ami until next time this has been the pulse on ami audio thanks a lot for listening have a wonderful rest of your day this was an ami podcast for more accessible media visit ami.ca Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.